Welcome. Welcome to the, uh, to the second in this year's speaker series on Islam and uh, democracy, uh, sponsored by the Mershon Center, uh, the Middle East Studies Center, the Department of Political Science, and the Honors and Scholars uh, Program. Uh, our speaker today is uh, Shireen Hunter, who comes from Washington, where she has long been associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, she's now, uh, however, a visiting professor at uh, Georgetown uh, University, also a consultant to the RAND Corporation, um, and uh, has been an academic fellow at the Carnegie Corporation. So uh, she knows the Washington think tank world uh, with regard to uh, Middle East studies and Islamic studies uh, very well, and also uh, the academic uh, world. Her areas of expertise include the Middle East, uh, Mediterranean, Russia, Central Asia, and the Caucasus, and she has done extensive work on North-South relations, energy, uh, developing country issues, and Islam. Uh, she's the author or editor of 19 books and monographs, including most recently Reformist Voices of Islam, Reformist Voices of Islam, Mediating Religion and Modernity, which is forthcoming uh, this year. That's the project that she's been working on uh, most recently. Uh, she's also the author of Islam and Human Rights, uh, Modernization, Democracy, and Islam, Islam in Russia, and Strategic Development in Eurasia after September 11th. This is uh, one of the books that I just listed, Modernization, Democracy, and Islam, published by the Center of Strategic and International Studies. It's got a chapter uh, by her in it on Iran, uh, which is her uh, main expertise over these uh, last few uh, decades, uh, but she has also written quite widely uh, on questions about Islam and politics in general and democracy in its relationship uh, to Islam and to Middle Eastern politics. So it's kind of fitting, actually, that she has a chapter in here on Iran, but she's also the editor and responsible for writing the introductory and the concluding uh, chapters, which look much more broadly uh, at the picture of democracy uh, including Islam, uh, in uh, Muslim-majority countries um, in the Middle East and uh, elsewhere. Uh, so her topic today uh, is uh, Islam and democracy. Uh, are they compatible? Uh, welcome, please, Shireen Hunter. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Bidel. Bill, thank you very much indeed. And... Uh, uh, I should say good afternoon, right? We are afternoon uh, for all of you who have been kind enough uh, to come uh, to this talk. Um, uh, Bill mentioned about my uh, uh, being an expert on Iran. These are like uh, uh, your family, some of the subjects of your uh, expertise you don't choose. They are sort of imposed on you. And uh, um, uh, being of Iranian descent and uh, having kind of come to this wonderful shores, which was my good luck, um, when um, the Islamic Revolution deprived me of my original vocation and job, which was diplomacy. Um, so I had to earn a living, and those days the only way for me to earn a living was <laughs> uh, to be um, an expert on Iran. Uh, with that, <laughs> uh, but then of course, you know, and I, I have to say that actually I learned more about Iran in America than I would have learned if I had remained in diplomacy. Uh, but um, 
Anyway, and uh, obviously, you know, having started out uh, in a way my second life, if you want, uh, um, uh, uh, as a result of an Islamic revolution, um, it was also inevitable uh, for me to delve more uh, about, uh, you know, how did this happen? I mean, you know, how did, you know, Islam suddenly become such an important uh, uh, political force? Because uh, when I was growing up, um, this was not very obvious. And uh, a lot of people with hindsight are saying a lot of things, but, uh, you know, for actually those that were living there, this was not exactly the case. So obviously I started doing Islam as well because... uh, uh, I would say sometimes, particularly in the think tank world, if not uh, actual um, academic world, um, it is a little bit like a business also. And uh, if uh, you don't diversify, uh, you 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 uh, go out of business. And so you have to uh, um, uh, kind of uh, sometimes shift your uh, uh, areas of research and so on, uh, depending on the market demand. And, and so since the uh, 1980s, obviously, there has been a lot of uh, uh, demand uh, for, 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 for Islam and uh, uh, other things. I remember, though, that uh, people actually told me after the, I was also doing a lot of Central Asia and so on late uh, late uh, 80s and 90s, and uh, people at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union told me, well, Shireen, what are you going to do now? Because, you know, all your areas, because the peace process was going well at the time, and and, and then, of course, Soviet Union collapsed, and uh, Khomeini had died, and so on. And people asked me that, what are you going to do now? And uh, I said, well, you know, something will turn up, and and, uh, uh, sure enough, uh, it did. So anyway, I'm sorry. I just wanted to to kind of uh, put you in the picture of why I have been doing uh, so much more Islam and and, and, uh, politics and democratization and all these other things, while I really rather do some other things, which is more of my interest, like your regular IR or regional studies. But having said that, uh, I think that... um, it seems to me, let me just start uh, by uh, saying that we all remember that, um, uh, um, I, I mean this really in a neutral way, because that's my approach to everything. I, I think that I like to make this. Um, in fact, I had an assistant, um, a young girl who is now doing her PhD at Georgetown, and uh, she still comes to see me. She's very loyal, who helped me when I was doing my Islam in Russia book. And um, uh, which just has to do more, uh, well, anyway, and she was helping me because she is uh, uh, Russian-speaking. She's half Kazakh and half Russian. And um, uh, she has gone and read uh, just about everything that I have written. And uh, she told me that, you know, Dr. Hunter, your problem is that uh, you never come uh, really very clearly on the side of uh, one, uh, you know, if, if, if the issue is really polemical or whatever, uh, you don't come uh, on the side of one or the other uh, argument. You're always in the middle, and you always try to see the perspective and point of views the other side, and you always tend to, um, uh, you, you know, tend to kind of um, uh, 
emphasize the complexities uh, and and the intricacies and the you know interrelations and so on. Um, and so you are kind of alone because neither side really uh, 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 likes or trusts you very much because uh, the one that disagrees with you thinks that you know uh, anyway. But. My uh, motto has always been that uh, life is complex, uh, issues are complex, and anyone that comes and comes up either with a particular paradigm or really a particular um, thesis which uh, tries to explain complex processes of modernization, because let's not forget modernization, democracy, uh, at least one would hope in a, what uh, one of my colleagues that contributed to that, and I really like him, he's a marvelous sociologist, and uh, um, said um, a liberating modernization rather, rather than uh, a liberating modernity rather than a regimentizing modernization. Uh, because as people say, modernization or modernity has dark side and light side. Uh, but um, uh, these are very, very complex, uh, you know, processes. People throw these words around and, and so on, and even they write very, very long books about them. Uh, but they, uh, I was frustrated that they really don't uh, uh, try to show how many complex processes have been at uh, at work is it for example the the way france was modernized or democratized the same as england or 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 the netherlands what about uh, the late modernizing european countries was there any connection between the fact that they modernized later with the fact that democracy you know got there late whatever um but um, so I basically am I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, applying a single factor uh, sort of uh, analysis to anything. Uh, but uh, one of the things that uh, lately has acquired a great, um, uh, I mean, it used to be important, but now has acquired a, a really great uh, currency, uh, which in my, and, and this I have to say that it is not merely um, in the West, uh, unfortunately, also in the Islamic world with some people. Um, uh, and, and some of them take it actually from Western sources. And um, uh, you know, they say, you see, we were right. Look at such and such professor in America is saying the same thing. Or such and such uh, learned person in, in France is saying the same thing. Uh, and one of the themes that has come back um, which I call it uh, cultural determinism. And of course, uh, I don't want to go back to the tired and now uh, um, issue of the clash of civilizations and uh, Professor Samuel Huntington thesis, which was fairly categorical. And of course, a lot of things that now has been happening, particularly with 9-11 and so on, at surface will give credence, you know, to his thesis, you know, that you see, I told you so, and this is right. Uh, but uh, what had, is that uh, the, 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 the issue of uh, cultural determinism, uh, in other words, it is uh, a cultural characteristics of uh, nations and um, states 
by extension, uh, that really determine uh, the trajectory of uh, process of their both modernization uh, and, of course, whether or not uh, a democratic system uh, uh, takes root in there or not uh, has become very popular. Uh, whereas before, a very prominent um, expert and so on, uh, that, uh, you know, in their earlier writings, I mean, for example, Martin Lipset, who is one of the really our greatest scholars in this thing. Um, I remember reading his stuff that was written in the 50s and 60s uh, that uh, really doesn't, uh, you know, basically he says that cultural uh, factors don't matter uh, that much anymore. But his later writings, he overemphasizes the whole, you know, cultural factor. And of course, uh, let's not uh, forget that uh, uh, the same thing has applied before. And I think that, you know, if you remember Max Weber uh, in his famous, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the Protestant ethics and the development of capitalism and so on. He very he is the first one could say that cultural determinist. That he really truly believes that uh, certain uh, religions and certain uh, uh, cultures uh, therefore are not uh, capable of um, either uh, developing the sort of capitalist system that he considered as a representative of the modern and of course democracy or whatever. And um, he, for example, uh, uh, um, categorically like says that the, the, the Catholic uh, uh, religion uh, is not prone to this. And in uh, reading that, it was very interesting. Uh, he doesn't look into why is that uh, Maybe there were other factors that, for example, at, in Germany of his time, there were not many Catholics uh, as uh, heads of uh, big uh, companies or corporations or very big industrialists and so on and so forth. But if you now look at Bavaria uh, and the, uh, if nothing else, the BMW, which, if I'm not wrong, it is uh, by Bayer. Bayerish motor works or whatever. So you see that Bavaria is the most Catholic part of uh, uh, um, most Catholic part of um, Germany. But now they have capitalism and they have you know other things. That doesn't mean that certain aspects of Catholicism uh, is different. They they you know of rather than they uh, they don't want to build. You know they don't believe you can build heaven on in this world. Uh, and they take um, you know, Christ's word that my kingdom is not in this world, literally. That, but the Protestants think that you can have heaven both here and elsewhere. Now, that's not for me to enter. But the point I'm trying to say is that because there has been so much talk of uh, exceptionalism of Islam and uh, almost esotericism of uh, Islam and the discourse of uh, uh, development and democracy in the Muslim world uh, that I wanted to just refresh a little bit people's memories uh, that uh, these are issues that were debated in Europe itself uh, and for example in Latin America which uh, uh, of course was uh, solidly Catholic although now things are beginning uh, to change and we will see uh, whether or not um, that is going to uh, have an impact, and they're going to become more democratic or less democratic uh, or uh, whatever. Um, so this is one thing that I really wanted to uh, talk about that. The other thing that it seems to me that, uh, and then I will go into Islam and some of the other uh, uh, 
grand generalization, which I think that needs to, to really be deconstruct, uh, deconstructed if we want to uh, get a grasp of the intricacies of various issues. Um, uh, the other thing that I wanted to point out at the beginning is that uh, democracy in itself is a contested term. What do we exactly mean by democracy? What does democracy involve? Um, is it, for example, uh, the mere uh, going to the polls uh, and uh, voting uh, periodically? Uh, does, does that mean that uh, uh, one has democracy? Uh, is democracy, is, this is, for example, a, what we call maybe a procedural democracy. Um, the other thing is that uh, democracy and whether or not it is uh, uh, who participates in it, when if, if we assume, which this is again, I think a lot of it is myth and reality, this kind of the shining example, Athenian democracy. Uh, when you really look at what Athenian democracy consisted of, was a group of essentially rich men, and not many of them, that had the leisure to get together and talk about the uh, affairs of the poli police, or poli police, whatever, police not, but excuse my pronunciation. It is the Iranian background, the French education, all sorts of various things, and the English overlay, it's, it's really, I beg your pardon, but you know what I mean. It's like metropolis or whatnot. So the point is that uh, our concept of democracy has evolved. Who takes part in the democratic process? Let's look at the, in my humble opinion anyway, not because I lived in England and I love England and I studied and worked there, but the fact of the matter is that one country that uh, French won't like it, others won't like it, but the one country where the, these processes of modernization and democratization really evolved in organic fashion was Britain. Um, you can say to some extent some of the Dutch, uh, but really Britain gave uh, birth the same way that they gave birth to the, uh, yes, there were other factors that contributed, but ultimately the big breakthroughs came from England, whether it was the industrialization, the big ideas of principles and whatever. But even in Britain, which I believe is the, the mother of democracies, um, when you look at the early uh, times and then you look at various, for example, reform bills and, and uh, expanding suffrage and so on and so forth, it took a long, long time uh, before uh, uh, the United Kingdom that uh, had the universal suffrage. Uh, even, uh, you know, for how many, I mean, you just, uh, you just read, uh, you know, some of Trollope's novels, which I think that really some of them are excellent lessons, actually, in politics in general, uh, uh, how politics works, you know, things like, um, the, and, and, you know, like every duke's or earl's elder son would go to parliament or younger son, because the elder, yes, no, first go to parliament and then when the father died, we'll go to House of Lords. Uh, but what I'm saying is that it was just, so that peasant, do you really think that the peasant or the tenants working for, for a duke and whatever, uh, when they cast their votes, were they really free? I mean, that was, they knew what they were doing. If you knew that, for example, you would lose your job if you didn't vote for such. So what I'm trying to get at is that, when we talk about democracy, we really have to understand that what we see today, 
uh, in Western democracies, the liberal Western democracy, is a fairly relatively new phenomenon. And in particular, certain uh, uh, aspects of this liberalism uh, which, uh, which applies uh, uh, to what we can uh, uh, basically uh, uh, characterize as, as moral and ethic values of society. Uh, because these uh, moral and ethic values of societies evolve. Um, you know, when uh, I was a teenager and I was wa used to watch, for example, American movies of the 1950s, they always came late, or 60s and so on, um, and I saw the, the, the college scene or, or university scene and so on, it was totally different of the classes that I teach today. I love my students, and they are wonderful, wonderful kids, and I really am proud to, to, to be affiliated with them. But it's a totally different you know, way of doing things and, and certain things that were accepted, whether it was the way you dress or what, is, what goes and what doesn't go. It is different. Society evolves, and those uh, evolution of society then is reflected uh, in what's accepted. Now, but when we are saying, for example, that there is no democracy in the Islamic world, often what we are, uh, and there is, there is a lot of deficit, believe me, incredible amount of deficit. The question is, and we have to elaborate that, whether uh, this um, is because of Islam or because of other things. Uh, it's, it's because we want them not just to accept which even for that, some of them have trouble, but they are not the only one, to accept at least the procedural dimensions of uh, democracy. In other words, to have at least uh, fair uh, elections uh, uh, um, conducted uh, in a relatively, I'm not very, you know, I don't have high expectations, but uh, conducted in a relatively fair way, uh, and then to accept the results of uh, that, uh, the, the popular mandate. This is the crux of the matter, ultimately, in democracy. Whether uh, any country that cannot accept, cannot conduct their elections in a fair manner, uh, and then accept the results, um, and, and transfer power peacefully, to me, at least, the essence of democracy is transfer of power peacefully and willingness then to wait for your turn rather than, uh, you know, do what uh, they are doing in many uh, of the uh, um, uh, third world, what we used to call third world countries. Um, you know, look at Kenya, for instance. Uh, they fight. They don't agree at this. We don't know what Mr. Mugabe is going to do now in, in, in Zimbabwe or, or you know, some uh, other place. Um, um, Hugo Chavez, if he has uh, his way, he would want to become, uh, uh, you know, a left-wing, uh, uh, what do you call them, Cadillo or whatever, you know, or become another Castro and have presidency for life. But I hope he won't get away with it. He didn't anyway, at least to change the Constitution. But the point is that this is really what matters. But beyond that, we want them never also, when we call a country democratic or not, we also want them uh, to accept basically our uh, moral and ethical values. Now, some of these moral and ethical values, at least in my opinion, uh, are universal. 
they really are universal human values. And whoever <coughs> that uh, uh, denies that, uh, in, in my opinion, is just doesn't believe in it that human beings have, have some uh, basic rights. For example, I don't see how one can not believe that people have uh, a right to life and, and, and safety and, and a degree of privacy and uh, uh, their the, the property not to be uh, uh, seized unlawfully or whatever, or the right to habeas corpus or, or, or uh, um, you know, freedom from torture, uh, right to freedom of conscience and uh, freedom of expression and so on. But then there are other issues that uh, for societies that I, I, uh, are either uh, you know, very religious or very traditional, uh, they do not consider those, at least at this point, all of them consider those, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, as uh, universal values. And they think that in something. And uh, uh, the most important area, which is, uh, because I will come back to it in the Muslim context, uh, the most important area uh, is in regarding to uh, the question of uh, basically women and uh, uh, sexual morality. Uh, I remember this, please uh, take it, the, the, the sociologist, um, Engel, uh, Ronald Engelhardt and, and Pippa Norris, uh, they did a study on um, whether, you know, democracy and various attitudes to democracy and all that. And in the case of uh, Muslim countries, they say that uh, in Muslim countries, problem with democracy is not the demos, it is the eros. Uh, in other words, when all of the uh, uh, all of the, um, um, the polling that has been done, uh, whether Gallup or uh, sometimes Pew and others do, uh, in the Muslim countries, all of them, including you know, I mean, of course, I'm not talking about jihadists and so on. Uh, I will come back to that uh, uh, because they are not, they don't, they, they don't want uh, uh, politics, you know, by law. They are totally outside the law. They are, they are revolutionaries in their own mind and, and they, they condone violence and so on. So I will come to that. But I don't think that since they also are not a, the, the majority of uh, Muslim population and so on. So I'll come back to that and I don't want to ignore that or underestimate that. But I just want to first come to some of these issues. So they, they all of them want democracy. Actually, they want more rather than less. Look, for example, now at the situation in Turkey. Well, the uh, Turkish um, uh, judges have a uh, constitutional court now is uh, actually has uh, uh, ordered that this, they have appealed and they are going to contest it. Uh, but uh, they have said uh, that uh, the uh, uh, AKP, the, the Justice and Development Party, um, uh, uh, and should be banned. Uh, and uh, that, uh, uh, and that uh, uh, Tayyip Erdogan uh, and Abdullah Gül, the uh, president and the um, and the um, and the uh, um, prime minister should be banned from politics for five years. Now, this is the secular elite of Turkey that are doing this. And what are the accusations against them? That they have a secret agenda. 
that they want just to, uh, they are using, uh, Erdogan now, I mean, is wearing, you know, uh, very good uh, European clothes, and he looks pretty good in them. Both him and Erdogan are, you know, presentable people and uh, personable also. Um, and and the uh, um, Kemalist elite doesn't like that because they're not denouncing Islam. And, uh, you know, I think that, for example, we would say that it is a democratic right if we believe in freedom of conscience and freedom of religion um, and the freedom of people to practice their religion. I think it would be really very... I personally, as you can see, uh, have a, a preference. I don't believe in veiling. I don't believe veiling is uh, compulsory in Islam, but that's my personal view. This is a contested issue. But the point, however, is that if I were a person who really thought that um, is sinning against God, if you are a religious believer, you have to think of God more than you can have to think of the inspector of the police. Uh, and just having a headscarf, meaning that I cannot go to university, I cannot have a, a university education, nor can I have a government job. Now, that is not according to the democratic principles. And so what I'm saying is that one of the reasons that they're accusing AKP of uh, uh, wanting to Islamicize the society without realizing that the reason AKP has come to power is that the Kemalist project has not completely succeeded for whatever reason it is. That people, I mean, you would, not, you would be surprised, but the recent Gallup poll shows, for instance, uh, and actually that Turks are much more religious than the Iranians. You have more mosques built in Ankara than in Tehran. And this is counterintuitive because of a variety of things. Uh, but, um, they, but the point is that nobody, I mean, this was under the uh, Kemalist regime that these people put back the scarf or, or, or never left it. So um, you see what I'm trying to say? It's not so much demos, but it's also that uh, in the context, it is like not wanting to share, not wanting to share power. In the problem in this part of the world, in general, in the uh, less developed world, is that uh, uh, once people come, and I have argued in the book why this is, which has a lot of reasons that I don't want to get into it. If you want to ask it, I will, I will say it. Um, but uh, the fact, the point I'm trying to say is that uh, the issue of really uh, uh, democracy and non-democracy is not religious and secularism. I mean, you can have seculars, which are also against democracy when that democratic process does not work in favor of them. After all, the democratic process will demonstrate the moral conviction of the majority of people. And if these people are religious, then that is going to be, you know, because some of these issues are not even resolved in our own country. I don't want to get into that debate. But, you know, election is coming, and some really hot-button issues are going to come. Uh, uh, to the fore, and we see that opinions are divided largely along a uh, secular religious divide. People who are more religious-minded have certain positions regarding certain key issues, and those who are more secular have a different uh, approach. It's, um, I think it was Henry Louis Gates, uh, who is mar marvelous, he said um, this whole debate about uh, 
fate and reason. Of course, I don't believe there is a contradiction between fate and reason. I think, you know, a lot of people have demonstrated, including St. Thomas of Aquinas or whatever, although the very religious people actually believe that the rot started with him when he started to bring in uh, the uh, Greek logic into the scripture, analysis of scripture. Anyway, the point is that... Um, it's uh, it's these are not uh, issues that are oh yes he said the 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 conflict between uh, fate and reason is something that has always going to go i mean you know who, who is revelation important or uh, independent and what they call self contained critical uh, reason sufficient do we need revelation as human being or we don't need it anymore because we have reached a level of development at our own reason? So this is not a debate that is solely uh, limited to, to Islam. Now let me come back to the very, uh, some of the specific of Islam which has been told that it is uh, against uh, uh, you know, combining it uh, with uh, democracy. I would like to start out first um, uh, to say this, and uh, you can challenge this if you want. Basically, if we um, define uh, democracy as being an outgrowth of a completely secularized society, where the individual, where the individual, as expressed through the mechanisms of uh, democratic uh, process, and the individual uh, preferences are the source sources of legitimacy and legislation, then one has to, and in other words, a system which is, if you want to call it, man-centered or human-centered, or rather we should say human-person-centered, I don't know. But um, since I'm myself a woman, I know that the ladies won't take ombrage because it applies to myself. And believe me, I know how it feels. Um, the point is that this obviously is not going to be reconcilable with any system that puts God and its revelation as the source of ultimate legitimacy and also ultimate source of moral judgment, ultimate source of uh, deciding what is right or what is wrong. Um, and if you are a believer, um, I remember an occasion, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think it's really very important. Uh, in Ireland, some years ago, Ireland has changed a lot, but some years ago there was still divorce was not legal in Ireland. And there was some kind of referendum and voting or whatever that was going on. And I remember at that time that uh, the uh, Holy Father, uh, Jean-Paul uh, uh, II, he sent a message to the Irish that when casting your vote, remember God's commandment on this. And so if you were a really practicing Catholic in casting your vote, you would have a struggle, right? 
um, because either you listen to, and, and of course, if uh, the Pope speaks, that's, you know, uh, maybe in a different context, it's different. The point here I'm trying to make is that to, to say that some religious systems are particularly incompatible in, in, in uh, with democracy without looking into other things is really not correct. Any religion which puts the source of legitimacy and, 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 and the source of uh, defining what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, is you can't create your own new religion, of course. That's how schisms occur. Or once I remember I was speaking at, in Denver a long time ago about, again, some similar issue, uh, and I said something to this effect, and somebody got up and was very upset with me. And then I told him, well, you want your own designer religion. In other words, you choose what you want to accept, and you choose what you don't want to accept. That is your right, but then you cannot say, I am a practicing this. I cannot say I'm a practicing Muslim, because I'm not. I'm not doing the things that, now that doesn't necessarily make me wicked, in my own opinion, but for a, a practicing Muslim, I am not a good Muslim. All there is to it. I just am not. Or the same thing goes with a number of you know, uh, other people, people who say I am a practicing Christian, then they commit adultery. But we know that in commandments says that thou shalt not commit adultery. So how do you square that? You know, you can't, you know, because we can't just take one part of it and say another. Everything is, is, is a whole. It's a little bit like a democracy. You can't just say you can vote, but you cannot publish newspapers. Uh, you can vote, but you cannot disagree with me. So let's get to Islam more specifically. One of the most uh, famous things that has been said about Islam is that in, I like this Bernard Lewis. I disagree with Bernard Lewis, I may as well say it, because he is a cultural determinist. And frankly, he is a good Ottomanist and not the rest. This, all these new things has come lately. But the point is that he has said nevertheless something. which He says that in Islam, there is only God and no Caesar. Uh, whereas in Christianity, there was Caesar and God. So the realm of Caesar and the realm of God were totally <coughs> separate uh, because uh, uh, Christ said, give to Caesar, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what's God. And therefore, they, they take from this uh, that uh, in uh, Christianity, politics and religion are separate and whereas in Islam, uh, they, never inside Islam, actually, there is a mention of ad-deen al-siyasa. In the Quran, when you look at it, there is none. Or there is nothing in the uh, Prophet saying that who would say that, um, you know, um, religion should guide you, you know, in everything and so on. The problem was that Prophet of Islam also created a community upon which then he uh, ruled. And so this idea was somehow created that uh, uh, politics and religion in Islam are, are completely uh, intertwined and there is no separation from them. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the historical experience, you would see that there were eras of Christianity when that politics and religion was incredibly intertwined. 
notwithstanding the realm of Caesar and the realm of God. In fact, the Caesars and the God fought wars in many ways. I mean, you know, um, you look at, I, I don't want to get beyond my this t uh, topic subject, but I don't think that Henry VIII was, did what he did just because he wanted to kill Ambeline and marry some other woman. He wanted to get, he wanted to say that I get my authority directly from God and I don't need uh, the, the, the Holy Father to, to give me. But whereas, you know, or Napoleon, after inviting the, the, the cardinal, taking the, the, the crown from the hands of the cardinal and putting it on his own hand, because to showing, because there were a lot of things that legitimacy, nevertheless, of God and so on comes, and you know, that uh, in a way that to the extent that they defend the faith. And today in the United Kingdom, Queen is head of both the Church of England and Church of Scotland. And the, the, the so-called disestablisherians who want to separate this, you know, are not accepted. And the British are the least actually religious, you know, among only 4% of uh, uh, British go to church now regularly of uh, Church of England. But in the Islamic context, actually, notwithstanding this idea of there is no uh, Caesar and there is only God, uh, the the tradition actually has been that the domain of uh, religion and the domain of politics has been very much separated. And the history, and this is one of the maybe problems, and the history of Islamic world actually has been the subjugation of religion by politics, with exceptional cases. And Khalifs and others, they really have ask the legists and jurists um, to find uh, religious arguments, or what in Persian are said, a, um, a religious hat for whatever decisions that they wanted to make. Um, I wrote a book called The Future of Islam and the West Clash of Civilization, and, and I showed that there. I mean, I just didn't bring it out of my head. There were a lot of other stuff was written that I went and I looked and so on. It shows how various ideologies, even issues such as whether um, in Islam uh, there is free will or predestination, so much the division was linked to dynastic interests. The Umayyads, for example, said predestination because that suited them, whereas the Abbasid who were challenging them said that, no, it is free will because it suited them. Right? If you have free will, then you can, uh, uh, you can dislodge the other. But if it is predestined, and since the Quran, that the Mu'ayyads have to rule over the people. Or the, so that in the actual history of Islam, when you really look, the domain of politics and, um, and uh, 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 religion has been uh, separate. In fact, Ernest Gellner, um, I don't know, some people like him, some don't. I mean, I think he is pretty good. Um, they said that of all religions, Islam is perhaps the most secular. And uh, because it has, uh, first, it has really no official clergy. And secondly, uh, it just really doesn't express anything about politics. The, the, the only thing that uh, in Islam uh, they, uh, it says is what they, we call the objectives of the government. What are the objectives of the government? This is what is discussed. And of course, uh, um, the practicing uh, religious uh, people, 
um, have uh, and philosophers and so on. For example, uh, uh, Imam Muhammad Ghazali of uh, the third, uh, 12th century um, jurist uh, uh, that, um, you know, he, who, I mean, I, he was okay, but I mean, I think he was against philosophers and I don't like that. Um, uh, but he said very openly that the purpose of a good government in a Muslim world uh, is to provide conditions within which the Muslims can practice their faith freely and in comfort. But even Al-Ghazali said that uh, any form of government is better than no government, which means that when we have all these jihadist ideas of uh, turmoil and undermining and so on, these are actually revisionist ideas that uh, even though people like uh, bin Laden and uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri and all these people, uh, uh, you know, talk in Islamic verbiage, and because that's what it is, it's verbiage, it's not even correct. I have looked at some of the things they say, and everybody does this. They take, for example, one part of a ayah of Quran and leave the other part. For example, in the question of polygamy, I'm just thinks that uh, you know I, I, it's easy to understand. In the Quran, it says that limit yourself um, to four wives because they used to have unlimited wives, provided you can maintain justice among them. And goes in some detail, others, that what justice means, which I don't think anybody can maintain that kind of justice. Um, <laughs> sorry, just a little light note on there. Um, and, and if you can't, then confine yourself only to one. Having said that, no true Muslim, if it has any fairness and idea, uh, would be ha able to have more than one wife at least more than one wife at a time. And all kinds of you know, other things, you know, even in question of uh, divorce, which I, they can't just go and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Improper, you have to have witnesses and stoning. There's so much, I don't want to bore you with that. But the fact is that as, as Thomas Jefferson, that I admire very much in some ways, that he, said, he said, but if men were angels, there would be no uh, uh, use for government. Or if we uh, uh, listen to all the monotheistic religions, whether Judaism, Christianity, or others, and uh, even non—you know—the religions that I'm not very familiar with. I'm not, they, I not—I haven't seen any religion says that like hurting other people is good, or, or or stealing from them is good. Well, if we had lived by those ethical things, then we wouldn't need that. But the problem is that religion often is not uh, used uh, properly. Now, people say that um, some people. Uh, say that Islam has everything uh, that is uh, required for, in, uh, uh, um, for democracy, or at least gives the principles that indicate uh, that Islam really actually, um, uh, actually um, um, favors a more representative and a more uh, responsive uh, form of government than, let's say, an author authoritarian government. Uh, I myself personally agree with that. 
But does that, that mean, does that mean that these principles uh, provide a blueprint actually for a functioning democracy? No. But if you want to really truly have the intention of creating a functioning democracy in societies that are very religiously minded, it doesn't hurt that, you know, to give an Islamic frame of reference. Because whether one likes it or not, the experience that uh, Muslims have had or other third world countries have had with modernization and now with democratization has been as a result of basically colonialization. Their experience of modernity hasn't been a very good one. Modernity for them were superior arms that destroy them, occupied them. Um, they don't, didn't experience really democracy uh, at all. I mean, you know, they say, for instance, oh, they are this and that, they can't do, they can't industrialize. And so on. I always also answer, you know, I say, well, you know, um, England occupied Egypt, what, about 100 years or at least ruled it for more than 100 years. All of the Egyptian cotton was processed in England. They could have at least built one or two, one or two, textile factories in there. All of the Indian tea was processed there. All the Belgians, Leopold built the entire town of Brussels after Congo, who was his personal property. So the point I'm trying, I'm not trying to be an apologist or use a single factor thing that colonialism was responsible. No, colonialism was a catalyst. Without colonialism, they wouldn't even have known there is such a thing as, I know, I'm wrapping up as, uh, 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 you know, uh, modernization. But the point I'm trying to make is that uh, uh, these are some of the things that we have to deal with. So sometimes when we talk to them about, uh, uh, you know, democracy, they think that by democracy we mean secularism, but for a lot of them it means like it is atheism. So I think that it wouldn't be so bad that if one could, uh, let's say that yes, to tell them that, you know, in the Quran it talks about uh, consultation, shura. How this consultation in a modern world, populations have increased. You can't gather under a tent uh, and consult. You now have, therefore, the institutional framework for implementing the concept of shura will be to have a parliament. Or, for example, it says that there is an element of bay'a, in other words, play, paying of allegiance to the ruler. Now, how this is done? This is done by participating in elections and voting one out and voting the other one out. So I think that uh, uh, if you uh, define uh, you know, Islam you know, in this way, uh, I think that there is really no incompatibility uh, between uh, uh, Islam and democracy. Uh, now, obviously, if you do is define Islam as uh, some of uh, the more, uh, you know, extreme, uh, uh, well, I don't even want to talk to terrorist groups because they really are beyond the pale because they just defy, uh, they are defying and ignoring any kind of order, any kind of uh, uh, conventions. Let's forget about human consideration or moral consideration of their actions, but any kind of, they just uh, deny any legitimacy for existing governments, including Muslim governments, to the existing international system. So I'm not going to talk about them. I'm talking more about the kind of uh, even mainstream Islamists. Now, of course, if they think 
that uh, sovereignty belongs to God and, and, and the only way that you can rule. They, they want elections, but then they want uh, to put this electoral body uh, into a very uh, straight jacket in terms of what they can legislate. They cannot legislate what is against the Islamic so-called law. But I just will finish. I know maybe I've gone a little bit over of my time limit. And I'll just finish and conclude with this. In my opinion, and I may be very wrong, obviously cultural factors do play a role. The fact that Muslim countries historically haven't gone through the processes of change for reason that that we don't, uh, that happened in Europe and other places, and that uh, uh, their, their history of rulership is always has been an authoritarian rulership. Like, let's say, absolute monarchies of Europe before the age of enlightenment and changes that happened and what, what have you. So the democratic tradition like that is not very well ingrained, but there has been other factors who have also prevented them uh, from, uh, from uh, uh, moving ahead. I do not see Islam as such to being a, 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 um, a um, barrier for this. Um, the most important barrier is in some countries uh, that the uh, desire of the ruling elite to hold on to elite. In Middle East, for example, we are seeing, and in Central Asia, of course, we are seeing the emergence of what I call dynastic presidencies. Bashar al-Assad, uh, I'm sorry, Hafiz al-Assad dies, Bashar succeeded. Mubarak has been there for 25 years, and now there is protest, strike, you know, people are upset about the price of bread and what have you, he still hangs on. Uh, he doesn't even allow secular parties to take part in, you know, the Ayman Nur that he puts uh, in prison and so on. It has nothing to do with Islam. And, you know, um, anyway, um, so this is one element. This is very much, you know, ingrained on in that. But the other thing also I would like to uh, um, really um, bring to your attention, and we can discuss that uh, when we talk about uh, that Muslim countries have way behind, uh, uh, you know, other countries in terms of democratization, and they didn't caught on to the so-called third wave and so forth and so on, um, when you really look more in detail, you see that this is more a, que a problem really of the, specifically of the Arab world. Because when you look, for example, in Southeast Asia, and of course here we have Professor Riddle, he, I will not dare to talk about Indonesia in his presence. Uh, uh, I mean, I can never even imagine to, to knowing a millionth of what he can, he can enlighten us on that. This is one of the largest Muslim countries, has gone through a lot of um, trials and tribulations, um, ruled by modernizing dictators and so on, but I'm not saying perfectly, but haltingly, but nevertheless has been in the process of building, even at a time when he was ruled by a so-called Islamist, Abdul Rahman Wahid, uh, who was the head of Nahdatul Ulama, but he was an enlightened Muslim, and there are a lot of them as well. In fact, Christians used to go to Wahid uh, because they trusted him more than some of the even secular leaders. He was sympathetic to them when they had problems with government and, and, and so on. Malaysia, 
whatever you might think of it, there's obviously problems with that. They have had a functioning democracy since independence. British did a better job in Malaysia than in areas. Um, you have, for example, you know, Pakistan is a very bad example, but it has had periods of ups and downs, you know. Uh, but the latest thing, I was really impressed by the way this lawyer stood up to Musharraf and the way the people really, uh, this was impressive, whether this shows a maturation of, I don't know, Turkey, with all the criticism I have of some of the Kemalist theory, have gone a long way. And I really, really hope, because I always felt that the Turkish model of trying to bring in the Islamists uh, into the mainstream and moderate them and create an all-inclusive democratic process, uh, Turkey could be as a good uh, you know, uh, example. But, um, and even in some of the poorer countries like Mali, it's very poor, but they are haltingly doing things. Senegal is not a perfect democracy, but they are really doing this. So I think even when we look at the Islamic world, we see that uh, uh, that is uh, where, uh, um, uh, and of course, lately uh, there has been, and I just finished it here, there has been a big debate. This debate has been going on in the Muslim world since the 19th century, but uh, was interrupted, I think, for like about 60, 70 years because of the rise of secular nationalism and so on. But it's a debate going on within Islam itself. How should we interpret certain Islamic injunctions? Which injunctions have they? Because some of them all are not. And for instance, recently in Turkey, which I think is a very right thing to do, there has been a revision of the hadith, which is so-called uh, sayings attributed to the prophet, which are often very unreliable. And they are sanitizing this hadith and taking out the stuff that, about women and so on, which really, you know, you can find uh, you know, several more hadith which, from the prophet which says against it. So bottom line, in my opinion, certain variation of Islam Yes, it will not be uh, uh, um, amenable to our understanding. Liberal democracy and Islam as such, like any kind of very rigid religion, are not. But uh, democracy in a sense that people have a say in their lives, in the way they uh, um, you know, uh, run their affairs and they can be rule of law, um, my experience was maybe mine is not enough or is faulty, that Islam is not the main culprit and that we have to look into other factors as well. Thank you very much and sorry, Bill, for a little bit. We still have 10 or 15 minutes for questions. I'm sorry, it's just. Um... Questions? Yes. Um, I'll let you. Bring yes, please. No, no, you can clarify this. There seems to be an assumption that democracy is kind of like the, the evolution of a civilization, it's the evolution of a, of, a, of a society. Would you agree with that? Um, it seems to be an assumption you're making that that's, that's the natural process that a society can go through. Well, you know, um, uh, I don't see any inevitability. I don't believe in a linear, uh, you know, evolution uh, of history. And I do believe that even societies that have achieved, uh, uh, you know, the democratic uh, 
um, sort of um, uh, structure and rule and so on can go back on that. Um, you know, there is a sliding back. I mean, uh, one shouldn't uh, forget that. Uh, but I think that, yes, uh, democracy, in my opinion, is, uh, as Churchill said, uh, is uh, the worst of all systems except for all the others. Uh, because when you really look at it, uh, what else is be? I mean, you go to, I, I shouldn't go on too much, but you go to Plato. He, the questions that they were asked, it's interesting. One of the things I give to Greeks, which really are wonderful, is that they really posed all the important questions. Whether they found answers for them or not, it's another matter. But they did pose most of the important questions. You know, Plato poses all these questions and then tells us all about the problems of democracy, tells us all about, and even the sort of philosopher king. You know, it doesn't because of the way things evolved and so on. So a society that does not have a mechanism for peaceful change, does not have a mechanism for checks and balances. Now, those checks and balances can get corrupted. Uh, the, you know, democratic system, like any other system, can be subverted. One of the fears that uh, at least a lot of the non-democratic countries in the Middle East definitely hide behind it is that, look, if we have open elections and we allow some of the Islamist parties take part, once they get into power, then they're going to pass legislation which is going to, you know, uh, create an Islamic dictatorship. That may be so. They may be right. But, you know, at some point, uh, I'm not suggesting they should allow it. But on the other hand, if, let's say, a party like AKP comes and doesn't want to subvert, but, you know, you feel that uh, <coughs> they are becoming rivals for you, then you want to ban them. So then what would the other Islamically oriented people say? Say, if we cannot get our values discussed through democratic means and in the context of tolerating others, then they become radicals or do other things. But yes, for me, uh, democracy is in, uh, the best that so far we have been able to think of. <coughs> yes, sir. This, uh, the 57 <coughs> Muslim majority countries, and almost all of them are categorized as part of the third world, except for a few of them which have multi-party system and democracy. In the rest of them, anyone of us that was, was studying these countries, we see that there is a minority of oppressive governments in the hands of dictators, like in Antipoli, mm -hmm. India, and Egypt. And there are another minority which is challenging them, which are the fundamentalists of these other radical groups. In between, there is a very large group of mainstream or moderate Muslims yeah. that who want democracy, and there is a, there, there is a body of liberty. That's right. Uh, that no, I know. Elections. Pakistan is a very good example. The last election that which took place, the fundamentalists were beaten <coughs> and also the dictator, the corrupt party was beaten. That's right. In I mentioned Pakistan, that. Yeah. In three elections, a female secular, Western educated, who was assassinated later, became twice the prime minister of that country. So it tells us something that that common sense knowledge would be that if these countries, if they would be allowed, and, and the violators of the democracy in these countries are either the former Soviet republics, which are former communists, and that, and you mentioned Turkey as one of the examples, Hosni Mubarak, Saudi Arabia, 
most of those who are allies of the United States which are preventing the market of European democracy. Well, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I just, my question is about that. How much really we look at those factors uh, that is minority oppressing you in, in minority another um, I, I mean, I don't get royalties for the book, but if you read the book, it gives you all of the answers why some of these countries uh, are the way they are. One of the important, one of the basic problems of, uh, I think that particularly uh, in the Arab world, but of course Iran is a special case. It's a, um, it's a very strange animal. It's. Um, it's a kind of, if I can call it, is 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 a sort of a theocratic democracy, if you can call that. It shows that it's very very limited within a, a narrow limits, but at the same time, you know, there is a lot of activity going on. Uh, I think that um, one of the problems that I would say that you know in the Arab world, the the, the way it happened. Well. You know, for a long time, obviously, a vast part of it was part of the Ottoman Empire. So that was, you know, itself uh, an issue. Uh, the Millat system was different and whatnot. After the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, a lot of them, there were a lot of democratic movements, you know, uh, in even Egypt, you know, Sheikh Zaklu, uh, the nationalists and others and so on. But at the same time, nevertheless, they were also Islamist movement, Khilafat movement. Uh, Hassan al-Banna and whatever. They were not radicals, they were not jihadists and whatever, but they wanted Islamic, at least symbolism, uh, to be maintained. The problem that really happened, in my opinion, that um, was that very much distorted, not just uh, in, uh, in Middle East, but also in Latin America, distorted the process of evolution, democratic evolution of third world societies, it was the onset of the Cold War. The onset of the Cold War and this competition and the rise of, uh, you know, um, uh, these charismatic leaders, uh, you know, like uh, Jamal Abdul Nasser, I mean, you know, and, 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 and others, and the socialist, Arab socialism and, and whatever, uh, the over uh, incredible dominance of uh, the... Uh, uh, state and also following on the Soviet model, uh, the the single party system that essentially came, whether it was the Baas in uh, Syria and later in Iraq and or in Egypt and so on, there never was a concerted effort. One thing that one has to give uh, uh, credit uh, to the Turkish generals. Turkish generals acted behind the scenes. I mean, I, 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 the Kemalist ideology had almost initially fascistic uh, dimensions. The way, for example, uh, uh, forcing uh, minorities uh, to become Turkified and, and whatever. But he started the formation of political parties. He, even if it was initially looked like a sham, and, and that uh, um, after Ataturk died, the military would, you know, one day, uh, you know, kind of ban this party. But then the next day, they would allow the party to come back. I don't want to idealize Turkey. Believe me, I'm not one of those who, and I'm not a Turk, so, you know. But the fact of the matter is that Turkish military allowed at least the development of certain rudimentary political institutions. That is how 
that you had from the party uh, Rifah and even his predecessors, his predecessors from uh, Najmuddin Erbakan who wanted to create, a, you know, really wanted Islamic NATO, Islamic this and that. We ended up with Erdogan who wants to go into European Union. But in the Arab world, there never was slightest effort because why because they had the politics was uh, very much directed uh, by this um, by this uh, uh, um, you know ideological determinism and they wanted you know Saddam wanted to make Iraq to the new <laughs> Babylon uh, uh, Egypt wanted to unite all of the Arab world and you know uh, kick everybody else Gaddafi had his own third way so this doesn't leave if somebody they created their own secular religions democracy requires diversity acceptance of diversity and uh, this is one of the major problems I think that uh, uh, um, that the, um, I'm not in, in that part of the world, and Pakistan also. Let's not wax too uh, uh, too uh, 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 romantic about Pakistan. Benazir Bhutto got elected to presidency because she was the daughter of uh, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, a prime ministership. And uh, and now, of course, the idea that PPP is run by Ali Asif Zardari is, is just a travesty. I'm sorry. So the point is that the politics of Sindh is still a feudal politics. They, you can run, I'm sorry, they used to say that in some places you have had a yellow dog as Democrat and it will win. In Sindh, you run a yellow dog and call him Bhutto, it will win. Full stop. A 19-year-old boy is going to be the leader of the PPP, give me a break. Or in Bangladesh, the woman that got prime minister was uh, the wife or the widow. This is what, as a woman who since was 17 years old, struggled. Uh, when I went to faculty of law, there were about eight of us uh, at the faculty of law school. I, I hate people who want to do something because their husbands or their fathers or their brothers or whatever is very important. What about the woman that who struggled all day and... Uh, unsung heroes that, uh, you know, work at Walmart and, and raise eight kids or something. Anyway, <laughs> sorry about that, a little bit plot. But the point is we have to look about, this This is so much thrown at my face that Binazi Bhutto was so Muslim, uh, allows women to be, uh, uh, no, Muslim countries still treat women as second-class citizens. That's what they do. It is a kind of tokenism which I hate, whether it's in Western context or, or in a Muslim context. Tokenism. Tokenism. One more question? Okay. Oh Thank my you God. all very much. Either I was very bad or I was very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Very much. Very good. Oh, well, you are very kind. Thank you so much. Um, I get it. You worked at the Carnegie Endowment? Uh, I was as a Carnegie Fellow okay. for the Carnegie Corporation in New York.